Hello there to all my fellow 101 History Podcast listeners. It's great to be back on the air, and boy, are we going to be in for a big treat tonight. We are um, into the beginnings of founding rivals, Madison versus Monroe, the Bill of Rights, and the election that saved a nation. Well, from the previous night, we talked about um, the most uh, important thing that happened on April 30th of 1789, which was George Washington being sworn in as uh, president. And not just him being sworn in as president, but how James Madison made so much of what had happened on that day um, a reality years earlier, or not so much years earlier, but just a few years leading up to 1789. But in order to understand how our, our United States Constitution came into being, uh, we also have to understand um, James Madison's background, and we also have to understand his opponent's background, too. We need to understand that while, yes, these two men were running against each other at one time, we must also understand their um, contributions to uh, American society, as their contributions were, uh, in my opinion, impeccable. So, what we're going to be discussing tonight has to do with uh, Madison and Monroe's upbringings in Virginia, but how they witnessed Virginia go from being a colony to a state. And what's the difference between colony and state? Well, colony um, is in a sense like a, a settlement, and a colony can mean uh, a settlement that is actually governed by an outside um, entity, or in this case, being governed by um, a foreign country, being England. And uh, we should uh, remember, too, that um, Virginia was the first um, colony established in the New World, uh, most notably Jamestown, but the colonies as a whole, while they were inhabited by some... uh, unique, diverse ethnicities. In Virginia, it is predominantly English. And you could say that for all the other colonies, they were predominantly from uh, English uh, origins. So, what I find unique about James Madison and James Monroe is that where they were born, uh, it turns out they were not born that far apart. But a uh, hundred miles north of where the first English settlement was established, being Jamestown, James Madison and James Monroe themselves were born in the same decade, that is the 1750s, but only 20 miles apart from each other. Now, what year was James Madison born? He was born in the year 1751. He was born in a place known as Port Conway, located in King George County. Now, I know uh, exactly where King George is. That's um, on uh, US 301, going on 95, and then getting off at the uh, Bowling Green uh, Carmel Church exit and going 301 north into um, uh, King, uh, from Caroline County into uh, King George. As a matter of fact, when you get off of the Bowling Green Carmel Church exit on 95, that gets you into uh, what is uh, known as Virginia's Northern Neck. And what do you know, uh, both men were from that uh, region. 
Now, uh, seven years later, let's move to 1758. That's the year James Monroe was born. He wasn't born in King George County, but he was born in what was known as Westmoreland County. How ironic that uh, our nation's first president, George Washington, hailed from uh, Westmoreland County as well. He was uh, born at a place called uh, Pope's Creek. I've been to Washington's uh, birth home. Uh, the house that's there is actually a replica of what the original house would have looked like uh, from years ago. Unfortunately, um, that house uh, burned uh, some years back. But if you do want to visit Washington's um, birth home in Westmoreland County, it is definitely well worth the visit. So what I find also unique about uh, the years that Madison and Monroe were born in, uh, those years have some um, interesting contrasts. When James Madison is born in 1751, um, life in colonial America seemed to be, um, what do you call it, um, good. In other words, there were no conflicts, no um, wars uh, breaking out. So basically, when Madison is born, uh, there was no French and Indian War. You've got to uh, go forward three years after that, and then you have what's known as the uh, French and Indian War that begins to break out. But forward to the time that when James Monroe is born in 1758, war itself has already erupted, and um, not just erupted, but it has erupted on American soil. Now, it should be interesting to note that also, too, that both James Madison and James Monroe were descendants of 17th century uh, Virginia colonists. For Madison, his first direct descendant arrived to Virginia in 1611, nearly four years after Jamestown was first settled. Virginia was a, uh, what do you call it, successful colony, not just around the time Madison was born, but before his birth. And not long after his birth, that is when James Madison would move from King George to Orange County. Anybody know where Orange County is in Virginia? Well, it's in um, central Virginia. It's in what's known as the Piedmont country. It's not too far from uh, Charlottesville, where Thomas Jefferson lived at his um, famous home of Monticello. But I can tell you this, if you go on 64, I want to say it's exit uh, 136 uh, for uh, on US 15 to uh, Gordonsville, or what's known as Gordonsville and Palmyra. If you get off of that exit, there's a roundabout, and once you take that roundabout, you are really into uh, what's uh, known as uh, Orange County. Madison's, um, not to get too far ahead of the game, but Madison's um, home that he would um, uh, inherit, not inherit, but land that he would inherit, he would build a, a famous uh, home that's still in existence today known as uh, Montpelier. So Madison uh, moved uh, to Orange County as a very uh, young um, child. And Orange County, obviously, as I mentioned a moment ago, is not far from Albemarle County where Thomas Jefferson uh, resided. Well, I'll ask you this. It's an obvious answer, but I'm going to ask it anyways. Was James Madison a dedicated student? Uh, the answer is yes. 
He began his formal studies in 1762 at the age of 11. But under the tutelage of Thomas Martin, Madison's educational route would, be, would change in ways he never imagined. And this change, of course, would um, certainly be all for the better. This fellow named Thomas Martin had attended school at the College of New Jersey, which would later be known as Princeton. The College of New Jersey at the time in which Madison was uh, going to be heading off to college had a well-reputable image in terms of uh, rigorous studies, whereas William and Mary was um, lacking behind. So instead of, um, st instead of staying um, inbound in the um, colony of Virginia, Madison goes north into, uh, into, and attends uh, the College of New Jersey. This was a very good um, fit for him. For one, the college uh, was portrayed as a tight-knit community. Students and tutors would often eat together. Of course, when we think of colleges in today's time, we tend to think of, you know, depending on the size of the college. But when I tend to think of the universities, I tend to think of them as having up to about 20,000 students or more. Well, when Madison was at the College of New Jersey, he was one of just 150 students. Now, to be one of 150 students in uh, 1769 or 1768, that was a lot of students. But we must remember, too, folks, that not everybody went to college back then. If you came from a well-to-do family, then the chances of you being able to go off to college were much higher. So uh, the College of New Jersey, what, what made this uh, institution all the more um, valuable for James Madison is that it was a school that welcomed all Protestant denominations, whereas William and Mary catered to men whom were affiliated within the Anglican Church, or what, is, or what we often refer to as the Church of England. And remember this too, folks, in Virginia... What church is Virginia affiliated with? The Church of England, the Anglican Church. If you want to be a Methodist, that's fine, but just remember your taxes or your tax dollars are still going to the Anglican Church. So if you want um, to attend a school that's going to have better uh, religious diversity in terms of welcoming all Protestant denominations, uh, you would be better off going somewhere like the College of New Jersey. Um, now, what um, subjects would James Madison have studied? Remember this too. He didn't have. He didn't get a. Um, he didn't get to have a list where he would say, "Oh, I want to do this, but I don't want to do that." James Madison would have studied. A variety of subjects ranging from science, geography, rhetoric, logic, math, to reading Latin and Greek. He got the full nine yards, and I would say he darn well benefited from it. He even studied theology, and what was unique about him studying theology was that he studied under a man named John Witherspoon, who was the president of the college, and uh, not to get too far ahead of things, but uh, John Witherspoon, believe it or not, 
when the time came in 1776, he would become the only practicing clergyman to sign the Declaration of Independence. So what do you know, folks? It does pay to have some very strong connections. And, you know, it's one thing to be president of a college, but that's not to say that a president of a college can't be a teacher as well. And I think it's fair to say also, too, that uh, people, no matter what their positions were in college, especially in, this, in that day and time, they were capable of doing more than just, um, say, being the president. Well, Madison graduated from the College of New Jersey in 1772, and he had finished a four-year program in three years. During Madison's time, at, while in college, political tensions between the crown and the colonies had greatly intensified. So, if Madison graduated in 1772, what events do you think would have transpired during the, the time he was there? I can already name you one in particular that would have stood out. The Boston Massacre of 1770. Sure, there might have been some other incidents, but in my opinion, I think the Boston Massacre would have stood out as one that would have, um, and perhaps in James Madison, Madison's eyes, would have been one that really would have seen a dramatic alteration in relations between uh, the colonies and uh, England, not all the colonies, maybe in 1770, but most notably in New England. Now here's a good bonus question. When James Madison returned to Virginia after completing college, did he have multiple connections to the outside world? Uh, the answer is um, no. However, he did have one connection with a former classmate from the College of New Jersey named William Bradford of Philadelphia, who would provide Madison with news about events from other colonies. Now, I don't know if this fellow named William Bradford from the College of New Jersey would have been related in any way to that famous um, fellow from Massachusetts who led the um, Plymouth... Um, who was a part of uh, the Plymouth Rock establishment, uh, whose name was William Bradford. It's very possible, but I guess I'd have to do some, uh, what do you call it, more research. You know, when Madison, when Madison came back to Virginia... The author, uh, Chris DeRose, made a very good point. When, he re when Madison returned to Virginia, he became more vigilant with Virginia's lack for religious freedom. The Church of England still reigned over Virginia, and religious dissenters were forced to pay taxes to support the church. And dissenters in nearby counties from Madison's home were jailed based on non-Anglican faith. So remember, folks, Madison is from Orange County. Uh, the counties surrounding Orange are Albemarle, Culpeper, um, what we now know as uh, Green County and Madison, of course, probably named after James Madison. 
Louisa County, uh, Fluvanna. Uh, you think about it, there a lot of the outlying counties around Orange are strongholds for dissenters who choose to not uh, worship directly from within the Anglican Church. William Bradford, I tell you, without William Bradford, I'm not sure who James Madison would have had uh, direct contact with from uh, his days at the College of New Jersey, but not just direct contact with, but also to obtain information with what's going on with the other uh, colonies. So William Bradford would send Madison letters pertaining to events that ranged from the, from the destruction of tea at Boston Harbor to Parliament's passage of the coercive or what was known as the Intolerable Acts. And for those of you who aren't familiar with the coercive or what's known as the Intolerable Acts, Parliament passed this whole series of um, acts that were combined, that were all formed into one law. As a matter of fact, there were four separate laws combined into one act, I should say, in 1774. Um, I can give you a good example of, of what one of those laws were under the um, Intolerable Acts was the uh, Port Act of 1774, where Parliament um, signed into law the port closure of Boston. Why so? Because a year earlier there was the Boston Tea Party, and radicals um, got a hand on um, tea from the East India Tea Company and dumped over 300 chests of tea into the Boston Harbor. And all in the name of not wanting, of refusing to pay tax on the tea. And to understand why the tax on the tea was there, well, it was because the, early on the Townshend duties had been passed in 1767, which placed, in, what do you call it, uh, duties and, um, and, and taxes on lead, paint, glass, but most notably the tea. Well, Parliament does the colonies a bit of a favor by repealing every other, um, every other segment of that act in terms of taxes on items, but what do they still levy the tax on? The tea. So, as a result of uh, the radicals or the people of Boston refusing to pay the tax on the tea, Parliament goes about closing the port of Boston and it's bad enough that the port was closed, but what happens? Goods coming in and out of the port are shut off. The capital is relocated. Of Massachusetts is relocated from Boston to Salem, which is uh, north of Boston. So what I, um, what I do commend uh, Virginia for doing now is that um, Virginia took the lead in opposition to the Intolerable Acts but before I say that, the intolerable acts, James Madison saw these intolerable acts as measures that impacted all the colonies as one entity instead of viewing the matter on a colony-by-colony colony basis. And yes, Virginians did take the lead in opposition to the intolerable acts thanks to a young House of Burgess member named Thomas Jefferson. And it was Jefferson himself who introduced resolutions to set to set aside a day of fasting, humiliation, and prayer for the people of Boston. 
Well, while all of this is going on in terms of uh, the coercive and intolerable acts, did James Madison see vulnerabilities for Virginia? Yes. Were these vulnerabilities good and bad? Well, I think James Madison, by 1774, he's probably coming to the realization that, hey, maybe war is inevitable. Maybe it's just a short matter of time before even Virginia herself will not only declare her separation from England once and for all, but will go to war against her. But I think it's fair to say that even by 1774 that most Virginians were already in the, in the um, were feeling the sense that, hey, it's just a matter of time before war itself is inevitable. Because in 1773, Parliament had passed the Quebec Act, which pretty much uh, cut off all the uh, lands um, west of the, um, what do you call it, Virginia State Line at the time that were in what was known as the Ohio Valley um, area, as well as uh, land that uh, surrounded uh, great, the Great Lakes region and uh, present-day western Pennsylvania. So... Um, for James Madison, one of his biggest concerns was that he feared, in terms of Virginia going to war, he feared that the British could help promote slave revolts. And not just slave revolts, but what he feared was that perhaps the British would not only entice them to fight on their side, but to provide valuable secrets to the British that would result in their raiding the homes of uh, prominent plantation owners or not just plant, well, plantation owners, but aristocratic landowners. But Ma and Madison's grandfather was poisoned by his own slaves. Madison was also fearful that British forces could open up alliances with Indians along the western frontier territories. So, you know, the further west you go, you still have Indians, especially the Shawnees in uh, present-day Ohio, uh, there are um, Shawnee settlements in what is now Winchester, Virginia. Uh, then you have what is called the Mingo um, tribe, which inhabits uh, present-day parts of present-day West Virginia and Kentucky. Matter of fact, I'll mention the Shawnees and the Mingos in a little bit. But in terms of um, Indian front frontier um, territories. Yes, the fear that the British could lure the Shawnees and the Mingos and some other tribes um, in that far western um, frontier edge, that would raise um, a red flag in terms, of, uh, in terms of security. Well, here's a bonus question. Uh, what significant event would take place in Williamsburg? Williamsburg, Virginia, that is on April 18, 1775, being only one day after the shots were heard round the world at Lexington and Concord, Massachusetts. The event that took place on April 18, 1775, involved um, Royal Governor Lord Dunmore. He had given orders to seize the um, colony's gunpowder and ammunition, and this uh, was a very, very uh, tense moment because uh, Patrick Henry, you know, we all know Patrick Henry, you know, who gave that famous speech, 
I know I sh I don't know what course others shall take, but as for me, give me liberty or give me death. Well, Patrick Henry had led a group of uh, militiamen from Hanover County, where he was from, to uh, Williamsburg to um, to um, pretty much uh, give govern give Lord Dunmore or royal governor hell. I mean, I know that might not sound nice to say, but that's what Patrick Henry and the militiamen were going to do. They were not going to let Lord Dunmore stomp all over them and seize the gunpowder and ammunition. So tensions were pretty high, but luckily they were de-escalated thanks to a um, House of Burgess member named Carter Braxton. He intervened. But Carter Braxton was not playing favorites here. He was very good friends with Patrick Henry. He had a lot of friends on the on the uh, what we might refer to as the Patriot side. He also had many friends who still had allegiance to the Crown, or should I say, were loyalists. Carter Braxton himself, if you read in the book "Signing Their Lives Away" about the fame and misfortune of the men who signed the Declaration of Independence. Carter Braxton um, had a lot of mixed feelings about independence from England. Of course, we haven't gotten there just yet. I mean, we are pretty much near the point where we are all 13 colonies have said, hey, are going to say, hey, we're going to officially declare our separation. But Carter Braxton, um, getting back to where we are here, he intervened, and by intervening, he was able to reach a, a compromise with both sides on how to resolve the gunpowder issue. So basically, the compromise that Braxton came up with um, would, would allow uh, Governor Dunmore to repay for any lost supplies that, as a matter of fact, had been seized. So, no blood was shed, but, but many of the college students at William & Mary would begin daily drills in the aftermath of what happened in Williamsburg. They, these men would begin daily drill preparations for what would lie at stake. And one of those participants was a young fellow named James Monroe. Well, what do you know? Someone is in the, someone's waiting in the distant shadow to emerge and make a name for himself. And what do you know? That was James Monroe. James Monroe's ancestry is one that um, is even uh, more fascinating. Not saying that Madison's isn't, but Monroe's um, is very well worth uh, pointing out. His ancestry dates back to the reign of King Charles I from 1625 to 1649. Um, what I, what's unfortunate for King Charles I was that... Um, he was executed in the year seven in the year sixteen forty nine by a fellow named Oliver Cromwell, and James James Monroe's ancestor, being Andrew Monroe, was a, a loyal supporter to Charles the first. And in the aftermath of uh, King Charles the first being executed, that's when Andrew Monroe severed ties and did not want to have anything to do with Oliver Cromwell. 
And Andrew Monroe uh, did come to Virginia, and he established himself in what's now Westmoreland County. And in in the same areas of uh, Westmoreland County where Andrew Monroe established his, his home or settlement, James Monroe would also be established in that same area. As a matter of fact, um, it's fair to say that one of Andrew Monroe's most famous descendants was none other than James Monroe. Well, for James Monroe, you know, he's born in 1758. He's born um, really at the uh, utmost height of the French and Indian War. But it's in the year 1769, uh, six years after the French and Indian War, that Monroe's father, Spence Monroe, joined several other planters in Westmoreland County to support a boycott of British goods. Do any of you know what a boycott is? If you are boycotting something, you basically are saying that, hey, I don't want, I don't want to support this. Uh, I'm banning my, I'm banning, say, I, I'm banning all imported goods from England into uh, colonial America. So, in other words, when you support a boycott, you are uh, restricting. You're restricting everything there is to it. This incident was probably the first experience for young James in seeing firsthand what oppression itself could do to those whom were represented by anyone who could speak on their behalf. And it's fair to say that, hey, after the French and Indian War, yes, Parliament tightened the reins even more on the 13 colonies. Because prior to the French and Indian War, and even during the French and Indian War, you know, things were still good. But after the war ended, as we all know, the treasury in England was drained. So what do they do? In order to uh, make up for uh, lost revenue, they decide to tax us. And does that go along well in colonial America? No, because we did not have a voice overseas to, to vote in favor of the taxation. And because we didn't have a voice... What does that mean, or should I say translate into? Taxation without representation. Also in the same year, 1769, James Monroe himself began his formal studies under Archibald Campbell at the Campbelltown Academy. This is a very unique academy where many um, well-to-do or um, middle-class boys would have uh, attended school, and it just so happens that one of James Monroe's classmates was none other than John Marshall, a future Chief Justice of the United States Supreme Court. It was here at this school where Monroe and Marshall began their lifelong friendship. And if any of you all want want to know something else that's interesting in terms of trivia, believe it or not, John Marshall and Thomas Jefferson were cousins. And many of you are now asking, how are they related in terms of cousins? Well, Jefferson's mother and John Marshall's mother were sisters. Thomas Jefferson's mother was a Randolph. If any of you all know about the Randolphs in Virginia, 
They owned pretty much every piece of um, land. They even owned land in what we now know as present-day West Virginia. How so? Well, where my wife attended college in West Virginia, being Davis and Elkins College, it's in Randolph County, named in honor of the Randolphs of Virginia. And there is a little town just on the outskirts of um, Elkins, uh, West Virginia, where Davis and Elkins College is, known as Beverly, West Virginia, named in honor of Governor Beverly Randolph. So, yes, Thomas Jefferson's mom and John Marshall's mom were sisters, and and their maiden names were Randolph. So, you know, by being a Randolph, if you are related to the Randolphs, or if you are a Randolph, then you are good to go in terms of land ownership in Virginia. Well, what happened to James Monroe at age 16? Sadly, he lost both of his parents. And he was the oldest in his family regarding siblings. Now, I can't imagine being in James Monroe's shoes, especially in 18th century time when life expectancy is not high. But I cannot imagine losing both of your parents under the age of 20. Now, yes, in today's time, if a child at the age of 15 had lost both of his or his, par- his or her parents, that is very sad. But in 18th century time, folks, it was very common and prevalent for this kind of thing to be happening. So who's going to be looking after James Monroe and his siblings? It turns out that his mother had a brother named Joseph Jones who would become a force of intervention and guiding young James on the right path to success. Thank goodness there is family nearby that um, is willing to um, step up to the plate and um, help the um, survivors, especially the children, stay on the right track. Did Joseph Jones enable James Monroe to attend the college? To enable James Monroe to attend college at William and Mary, I should say. Oh, the answer is yes. Monroe's classmates consisted of sons from elite Virginia families. Well, that's that's obviously um, a, an automatic given. If you go to college back then, you are usually from the most uh, well-to-do uh, of families, but are also in that upper class of uh, society. And it, it is strongly um, safe to say that all of the of these um, sons from elite Virginia families are are directly tied to the um, Anglican Church. Here's a bonus question. What happened in Williamsburg two weeks prior to Monroe's arrival at William and Mary? And remember, folks, I don't believe there was such a thing as automobiles back then, so it's not like James Monroe um, drove down from the northern neck on, um, to uh, Williamsburg in a car in one day. No, he was probably going to college by means of horse and buggy. But two weeks prior to his arrival, Royal Governor John Murray, a.k.a. Lord Dunmore, had dissolved the House of Burgesses after their stand in defending the people of Boston. And this is in 1774, folks, as I mentioned earlier about those uh, intolerable coercive acts. 
And, um, you know, it's bad enough that the port of Boston was closed, but what are people hurting for even more? Food supplies. Think about it. When the uh, ships arrived into Boston, it was easier to um, offload the, um, the goods off of the ships and then get them um, from their uh, get them to their uh, destinations. But now that the port is closed, it's going to take goods and other services just to get from point A to point B at a much slower pace. So Virginia, along with some other colonies, along with a, a fair number of the other colonies, are sending goods and donations all the way up to Boston so that these people can survive. Because as um, as Thomas Jefferson said, as I said earlier, you know, if if this is an attack on Boston, it's an attack on all the other colonies. Now, um, yes, it's bad enough now that Lord Dunmore has dissolved the House of Burgesses in the aftermath of of Virginia of Virginians defending the people of Boston. Do the House of do those House of Burgess members? Do they sit back and say, okay, the house has been dissolved, we can't do anything else? No. They decide to take matters into their own hands by uh, meeting at the Raleigh Tavern. And I've been to the Raleigh Tavern many of times in Williamsburg. It's very well worth visiting. A lot of rich history took place there. As a matter of fact, those Burgesses, when they met there, they called for a meeting of representatives from every colony what would now become the First Continental Congress. And the events that took place in April of 1775 that ranged from the battles at Lexington and Concord in Massachusetts to the gunpowder incident at Williamsburg, Virginia, involving Patrick Henry and the Hanover County Militia, had inspired James Monroe and other fellow William & Mary students to train regularly for war. Hey, you can't just sit back and assume, well, if this incident happened, no other incident's going to happen. That's wishful thinking. No, James Monroe and his other fellow, um, fellow um, students are smart enough and realize that, hey, we better be prepared because we never know when we're going to be called into duty. Well, the bonus question here is that in the aftermath of the gunpowder incident at Williamsburg, is Patrick Henry the most celebrated figure in Virginia? Yes. Henry himself had led the march of the militiamen from Hanover County to the colonial cap to the capital and had confronted Governor Dunmore, but achieved his mission without resorting to shots being fired. However, I think it is fair to say had Carter Braxton not intervened, I, I do believe that perhaps a gun uh, perhaps some shots would have been fired. And if that had been the case, then it would have been our version or the Virginia version of shots being heard around the world. But yes, by Patrick Henry leading a group of militiamen, militiamen into Williamsburg from Hanover, he had um, definitely made a bold um, case by, by confronting Lord Dunmore and saying, hey, you could take the gunpowder, but, but we're not going to sit back and let you um, trample over over all of us here because we are not only proud Virginians, but we do believe in um, having the right to self-govern ourselves without uh, being um, 
dictated, not being dictated, but without being uh, trampled on by a tyrant who lives 3,000 miles away. Now, what's important about May 9th of 1775? The Orange County Committee of Safety approves a resolution regarding Patrick Henry's response to the gunpowder affair, along with holding Governor Dunmore accountable for his actions. Okay, now let me ask you this. The second part of this uh, question or uh, answer response is this. Well, first off, was James Madison involved with the uh, resolution, with the Orange County resolution? Yes. And where did James Madison first meet Patrick Henry? He met him at a tavern in Port Royal, Virginia, which is in uh, present-day Caroline County. Madison was just 24 years old at the time when meeting, um, got, when meeting Patrick Henry for that first time. Madison himself gave a letter which had the resolution document, which contained the resolution document, I should say, to Patrick Henry himself, so that Henry would have so that Patrick Henry would have it to take to Philadelphia. So Patrick Henry was at the tavern here in Port Royal, but he was on his way to his ultimate destination being Philadelphia to attend uh, the Second Continental Congress. True or false? Did the Second Continental Congress meet in total secrecy? True. Every delegate present in Philadelphia was involved with making decisions that were labeled as life and death. Any man could have been arrested or gotten hung for treason. Well, if you read the book Signing Their Lives Away, The Fame and Misfortune of the Men Who Signed the Declaration of Independence, Benjamin Franklin said the following, We, sh we must all join together or hang separately. In other words, we all, have to, we all have no other choice but to come together as one if we are going to declare our separation from England. But if we choose not to do it, then we will all have to answer to one another, not only for why we didn't choose separation, but we will also have to answer to those back home. So, yes, so in other words, by signing this document, yes, they were signing their lives away. Of course, I'm not, I know I'm, I'm getting early with the talk here, but the bottom line is, is that not everything took place on July 4th of 1776. That, you know, there were reasons why we had First and Second Continental Congress meetings, but even at those meetings, folks, our forefathers knew that they were um, making decisions that were based upon matters of life and death. Another question to consider is this. Just after the Second Continental Congress began convening, what military fort fell out of British control? I'll give you a hint. It's well north of Virginia. My wife and I, as a matter of fact, visited this fort 10 years ago when we were vacationing in New York State's Adirondack region for our five-year anniversary. The answer is uh, Fort Ticonderoga which is about 50 miles south of uh, Lake Placid, New York, if that gives you um, any um, indication of where it would be in the uh, Adirondack region. 
But uh, Patriot forces led, led by Ethan Allen and Benedict, Benedict Arnold led a raid of troops onto the fort that resulted in the capturing of uh, weaponry inside. Now, what is important about June 15, 1775? The Second Continental Congress unanimously agrees on naming George Washington commander, or I should say head commander, of the Continental Army. And for those of you who were with me from the last book, I discussed um, Founding Martyr, the life and death of Dr. Joseph Warren, the American Revolution's um, lost hero. For those of you who aren't familiar, we did not have an actual commander of the Continental Army prior to June of 1775. Yes, there were um, two battles, two well-known battles that had been fought in Massachusetts, Lexington and Concord, but there was a commander by the name of Joseph Warren. He might as well have been running the what was at that time the the beginnings of the Continental Army because he was, he was in charge of all the political, social, and economic affairs surrounding the Bay Colony, or should I say Massachusetts. But, um, but, just, but what's ironic is that on June 15th, when this decision was made to um, unanimously approve George Washington for the post, little did anybody know in Philadelphia that two days later on June 17th, you would have had this battle at Bunker Hill that would literally forever change the direction that um, that we were going in. And in other words, in the eyes of Dr. Joseph Warren, there was no turning back. We were going to show the mightiest empire in the world from a militaristic point that we were not afraid to go head to toe in open warfare combat. But I do believe that it was a smart move for the Continental Congress to name George Washington as head commander of the Continental Army because Virginia is the largest of the 13 colonies. And it's not so much that Virginia is the largest of the 13, but by giving George Washington the head commander post, this also would have ensured that... um, that the conflict, that the current conflict going on in Boston, Massachusetts, wasn't a regional conflict, but it was a conflict involving a greater continental concern. That is a, a, a concern that involved all 13 colonies. And remember this too, folks. Given that Virginia is the largest of the 13 colonies, and her land land holdings at this time go as far west as present-day Ohio, Indiana, Michigan, Illinois, Wisconsin, even into what we now know as present-day West Virginia, parts of Kentucky, Tennessee. Um, if any of the other 12 colonies want to even think about declaring their separation from England, guess what they're going to have to do? They're going to have to consult with Virginia right away because Virginia has a lot to gain but also has a lot to lose. And given that um, I think the, uh, the Continental Congress, I wouldn't say I think I know the Continental Congress was smart in saying, hey, we need a Virginian at the helm who can lead uh, the, uh, the Continental Army. If not George Washington, then I'm not sure who else would have been um, the right person to have done it. 
A uh, good bonus question is this. What important event happened in Williamsburg on June 24th of 1775? A group of 25 armed militiamen, which included James Monroe, made their way into the governor's palace and seized 200 muskets along with 300 swords. Now, I've been in the governor's palace countless times in Williamsburg, and when you go inside, for those of you who haven't been to Colonial Williamsburg, you definitely definitely need to go. But when you go inside, you will see a whole vast collection of muskets and swords all neatly lined up. Well, do you think these swords were automatically for the militiamen? No. They were um, a collection on behalf of uh, Governor Lord Dunmore by displaying these swords and muskets Governor Dunmore wanted to um, display the might and power of the colony being Virginia not just her power but displaying the fact that she was the largest of the 13 so what do you know? Uh, James Monroe and these other ragtag group of militiamen storm the governor's palace and they seize everything there is inside in terms of weaponry. Well, uh, here's a question. What would James, Mad- would James Madison have any military involvement himself? Yes and no. The yes side had to do with him being commissioned as a colonel in, or, in the Orange County militia. The no side, meaning that Madison had suffered and would endure consistent bouts of illnesses and therefore was never fit to serve in actual warfare combat. Well, even though this would have placed him at a disadvantage, it is fair to say that Madison used his talents in a, in a, what do you call it? In a, he used his talents. He didn't leave anything behind. He used his talents in other ways that were very uh, relevant uh, for the call and leading to the cause for independence. Now, did Virginia? Bonus, very important bonus question here. Did Virginia see any military warfare engagement before 1775 came to an end? Yes. There was a battle known as the Battle of Great Bridge down in the Tidewater, Chesapeake uh, region, or really in the area that we might even think of as like Hampton Roads in today's time. If any of you all aren't sure what Chesapeake means, I can tell you right now. The Indians, back in the time um, before uh, the English arrived at present day, uh, arrived at their permanent uh, settlement in 1607 that they would call Jamestown, the Indians that inhabited uh, the region, uh, especially being the Powhatan Confederacy, they referred to Chesapeake as abundance of shellfish. Very um, unique uh, name onto itself, but that's how the, uh, the Chesapeake region was referred to as abundance of shellfish. James Monroe himself, along with his former uh, schoolmate from childhood, John Marshall, along with other um, members of this uh, Virginia militia group, uh, engaged Lord Dunmore's troops. And believe it or not, 61 British troops were killed 
and there were no casualties on the militia side, which I find absolutely unreal. You talk about some skilled uh, marksmen on the militia side. They weren't afraid to put up a fight. But despite all this success at the Battle of Great Bridge, starting on January 1st of 1776, the British Navy would bombard Norfolk for three days and nights straight until the city lied in ruins. In the aftermath of the Norfolk incident, where did James Monroe see his destiny guiding him? The answer is easy. Being on the battlefield versus the classroom. Not saying being in the classroom is not important, but at this point in time, a vast majority of men, young men, or should I say students at William & Mary, are more concerned about their country's well-being. And, and for the right reasons. They know their studies can wait, but they've got to do what's necessary to protect not only just themselves and their fellow brothers, but their families and other Virginians as well. So Monroe himself would become commissioned as a lieutenant in the 3rd Virginia Infantry, and during the spring and summer of 1776, Monroe's regiment trained with other units under a fellow general by the name of Andrew Lewis. Now, of course, when we think of, um, Virgin of generals, most notably generals like from Virginia, we always think of George Washington. And it's easy to assume that and to think it, rather, I should say. But I do believe it is worth pointing out about um, General Andrew Lewis and why he is such a prominent figure for um, not just for Virginia, but, but how he earned his um, status in becoming a general. So let's try to let's get some information on Andrew Lewis. I can tell you this: he was born in the year uh, 1720, and his family is of uh, Irish uh, descent. As a matter of fact. His family came from Donegal, Ireland. Before becoming a general, his positions within the colony of Virginia ranged from being a surveyor to a soldier of colonial Virginia to serving as colonel of the militia during the French and Indian War. He worked as a surveyor for at least 15 years in southwest Virginia. His family would be one of the first uh, settlers in Augusta County, and if any of you all aren't sure where Augusta County is in Virginia, I know exactly where it's at. It's uh, It neighbors next door to um, Rockingham County where I attended college at, uh, where I attended college being in uh, Bridgewater, uh, being Bridgewater College, but uh, Augusta County uh, is where uh, Andrew Lewis's family first um, established um, their uh, settlement. And, of course, Augusta County and Rockingham, along with at least eight other counties in Virginia, make up the Shenandoah Valley. And, of course, if any of you all are wondering what Shenandoah means, it means Daughter of the Stars. Now, um, it's also worth uh, pointing out that as a surveyor, Andrew Lewis did um, survey the area that is known now in West Virginia as uh, Greenbrier County. Now, during the French and Indian War, 
Andrew Lewis started out as a captain in George Washington's regiment. And, um, and then the role in this war would led him to being promoted as a major. He was responsible for leading mixed forces of militiamen and Cherokees to attack Shawnee towns along the Ohio River. In 1774, which was the same year that the First Continental Congress convened, as well as Parliament's passage of those infamous intolerable or coercive acts, Andrew Lewis became a colonel and commanded regiments in what became known as Dunmore's War. I'll tell you that Lord Dunmore of, of uh, Virginia, he sure has gotten his name out, but I don't believe it's always been for the right reasons, though. But Lord Dunmore, in the case of Dunmore's War, may have actually been to our advantage. The conflict between the colony of this was the conflict uh, between the colony of Virginia versus the Shawnee and Mingo Indian nations. I mentioned about the Shawnees and the Mingo earlier. Well, here we go, folks. This war, or I should say Dunmore's War, was over territories involving present-day West Virginia, Kentucky, and Southwest Pennsylvania, where British colonists were moving into land south of the Ohio River. And it was at the Battle of Point Pleasant, which is right on the West Virginia-Ohio line, this battle forced the Shawnee Nation to give up all of, all of its land south of the Ohio River, being present-day Kentucky and West Virginia. And in March of 1776, Andrew Lewis would ultimately become Brigadier General. He oversaw Virginia's defense to raising men for a Continental Army. Lewis's forces also would capture, in that same year of 1776, they were successful in capturing Governor Lord Dunmore's last stronghold in terms of uh, British... Um, in terms of British military influence. The last stronghold was at, was at a place known as Gwynn's Island, which is in the northern neck in present-day Matthews County. And what do you know? This was five days after the Second Continental Congress had fully approved of our Declaration of Independence on July 9th of 1776. It would be the same official day that Lord Dunmore left Virginia and never returned again. Now, I should also point out that uh, Andrew Lewis, my dad uh, told me uh, years ago, uh, not years ago, he's told me this uh, on a couple of occasions. Uh, my dad is originally from Lynchburg, and he attended a high school known as uh, E.C. Glass, which was named after the uh, prominent uh, Glass family of uh, Lynchburg, Virginia. And if those of you who aren't familiar with the Glass family, they were a very powerful political uh, family in Virginia. Uh, one of their family members was known as Carter Glass, who would be a U.S. senator from Virginia. He was responsible for um, passing legislation that created our modern-day Federal Reserve System back in 1913. He would also pass a piece of legislation during the beginnings of the Great Depression when FDR 
where Franklin Roosevelt was president, known as the Glass-Steagall Act, which created the Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation. And E.C. Glass High School, one of their big rivals, was Andrew Lewis out of uh, Salem.